0: It is so good that you are here today for our first service of our Spiritual Renewal Week. We're in for a great, great week. Our speaker of the of the week is Dr. David Busick. He's a general superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. The Church of the Nazarene has six individuals that are general superintendent, and Dr. Busick was elected uh, five years ago. Prior to that, he had been a pastor. In fact, he was pastor in Lenexa, Kansas. Just prior to my going to that church, so we pastored the same folks. Sometimes when a pastor goes to a new church, you have to clean up some messes. I didn't have any of those problems. And they loved Dr. Busick there. And then from there, he went to Bethany, Oklahoma, Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, which is one of the great churches in our denomination. And then from there, he was elected president of Nazarene Theological Seminary. And then he was elected general superintendent. We are so blessed. I know you're going to really look forward to this week. Would you welcome Dr. Busick as he comes up to speak?
1: Well, good morning, everybody. I greet you today in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. And every time I hear that kind of my bio read, it kind of sounds like that's a guy who can't keep a job. But... I, I am really, really delighted to be with you today. This is my first time to, to this great church. I've heard so many things about you and, and the work that you're doing, but it's an honor to be here for the first time, and I so appreciate Pastor Rob's invitation to come, and, and I do love your pastor. You know, whenever you pass off a group of people that you love, you want to put them into good hands. And, and he and Carla served Central Church so well. You kind of follow Central Churches along, don't you? But thank you again, Pastor Rob. Looking forward to this time very much. The Spiritual Renewal Week is, is a week of time that we set aside to, to seek the Lord and to ask the Lord to fan into flame the work that he's doing into us. Sometimes you, you might ask, well, well, why do we need spiritual renewal? Can't we just go, uh, go along and, and keep our fire hot? And why do we have to set aside time and prepare our hearts for times like this? It's a good question. Most of us in our homes right now, we have, we have something on our wall, little square boxes, or maybe now they're kind of maybe round little boxes, but they're called thermostats. And we go to those thermostats, and it's a wonderful thing because we can set it to about 71 or 72 degrees, and, and it never really varies. And it doesn't matter if it's in the heat of the summer or it's in the cold of the winter, it stays 72. You can, in fact, you could set it for 72 January 1 and never have to touch it again. But how many of you know our spiritual lives are not like a thermostat? We, we don't just set the spiritual temperature of, of our lives at one point in our past and, and never have to go back and revisit it. The Bible teaches that our spiritual lives are more like, more like a fire that needs tending. And, and along the way, if, if you don't stoke that fire and keep that fire hot, even the hottest fires eventually die down. And in the Church of the Nazarene, and even in the Wesleyan Holiness tradition, we we have set aside times of renewal, or revival, or what deepening, or whatever you want to call that, because we know that the hottest fires can eventually go out, and we want to set aside time—not only physical time—but we want to set aside uh, just a time of seeking God together, where we can be sure that we are fanning into flame. The fire that that God has has started in our hearts, so thanks for making that time. I know you're everybody has busy lives and and you have a lot going on, but I, I think that that God will honor a seeking heart of people who make the time and set aside a priority to be with god 's people. Uh, another thing i 'm going to say is because I think this is a time where everyone is seeking God to do something new, every service we're going to open these altars for people to respond. And it's not because I think the altars are going to be full every service or something like that, but, but when you're in a time of preparation and then a time of actual seeking, you never know what God might want to say to us. And sometimes we just we just need to we need to consecrate ourselves again by, by coming to a place and praying. And if that's not what you if that's not for you, that's okay. But but in in the tradition I grew up in, the altar is a safe place to respond to God, to seek God, and to pray with the body of Christ. So just giving you a little bit of a heads up of how you might want to be responding. Well, I have a question for you. How far will God go to reach one person? You notice I didn't ask the question, how far will God go to reach the whole world? Because the Bible's clear about that. For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever would turn to Him, He would give them new life, He would give them life eternal, and they will not perish. And so we know that God has gone to great lengths to, to save the world, but have you ever thought about the question, how far would God go to reach one person? How far would God go to reach your son? How far would God go to reach your, your, your mother? How far did God go to reach you? And we all have stories to tell. I, I, wish that, I wish that we could go and hear every one of your stories. I'm not making the assumption that everybody here today is a believer. But, but I would assume that most of you have had some kind of an experience with God. And if you looked in the rearview mirror, you, you have a story to tell. And I, I, I would love to hear those stories because all of those stories are unique. And, and of how, God, how far God went to reach you. And, and, in fact, that would be better than hearing me speak, for sure, is hearing all of you speak. But in order to think about that question, how far will God go to reach one person, I want us to look at two stories in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, first of all, to Acts chapter 8, and then turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And I actually, as I went through the book of Acts, I realized that there's, there's a number of stories that we could have looked at of life stories that demonstrate how far God went to reach one person. And what I want us to see just in these two back-to-back stories is not only how unique it was, how God reached that person, and how far God went to prepare the heart of the person who was going to receive the gospel, but also how God prepared the heart of the person who was going to bring the gospel, who was going to, to give the good news. So we have a person receiving the good news, and we have a person offering the good news. And normally I would ask you to stand as we read God's word together but because I want to just kind of walk you through these stories for a few minutes I'll just ask you to remain seated for that. First of all Matthew or I'm sorry Acts chapter 8 verse 26. Look at what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, "Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza." And let's stop for a minute and remember who Philip was. Philip was one of the, uh, the first disciples of Jesus. And Philip was an evangelist. And you know that the book of Acts is Luke part 2. So this is the continuing story, not just of Jesus of Nazareth, but this is the story of the church and how the Spirit was guiding the new church. So Jesus has been crucified. He has been buried, and, but he's been raised from the dead. And now he's ascended into heaven. And the Spirit, as Jesus ascended, the Spirit descended, and now the church is on the move. And Philip has just come from a, a, an incredible time of revival, and where there are hundreds of people coming to Christ, and he's preaching in a very unusual place. He's preaching in a place called Samaria. Think of the, the worst enemies of the United States, and then imagine Samaria. That's how the Jewish people felt about Samaria. They were their sworn enemies. They hated each other. And yet the Spirit was breaking through boundaries of cultural and ethnic boundaries. And now the church is even going to places where they never dreamed they could go before. And and there's this great movement of God. And right in the middle of that, the Spirit taps Philip on the shoulder. Philip, I want you to go south to the road, the desert road. You know that one, that one that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza? He, look how specific this is. And, and why would God pull Philip out of the middle of that kind of a movement of God for, for, for that specific time? I mean, this is go in the middle of the desert at high noon. How many of you know you don't want to be in the desert at high noon? And how many of you know that a desert road at high noon is not only remote, but there's nobody on the road? But I love what happens here. Philip doesn't argue with God. He doesn't say, God, that makes no sense. Why would I go somewhere where nobody else is? Why would I leave what you're doing here? No, he he instantly obeys because he believes that this is a divine appointment. And so look at the next verse, verse 27. So he starts out, and on his way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now, this is an amazing scene because now Philip is out in the middle of this very specific place, this intersection of highway, out in the middle of the desert in high noon. And he sees a little cloud of dust off in the, in the distance. So somebody actually is on the road. And we find out that the person is in a chariot and he is thousands of miles from home ethiopia is in africa what's this man doing here what's this is quite a coincidence how many of you know what a coincidence is coincidence is god undercover and so so here's this guy he's come all the way from ethiopia because he's a god seeker he doesn't know jesus but he he fears god and he is his heart is open and so he makes this spiritual pilgrimage, and he shows up in this place, and he just so happens to be on that desert road, and as he's coming toward Philip, the spirit whispers again, Philip, run up near the chariot. And you have to run up near a chariot, because if you're walking, a chariot's moving faster than you are, so Philip's kind of, he's jogging along this, by this chariot, and he overhears this man reading, and he's reading from Isaiah 53. Which is, a, which is a prophecy about the suffering servant. He's reading about Jesus, but he doesn't know that it's about Jesus. And so Philip, verse 30, look at what it says. Philip ran up to the chariot. He hears the man reading. And Philip says, hey, do you understand what you are reading? And look, I love this response. The, the man says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Can you explain it to me? Jump in the chariot. You want to talk about an open invitation. And so this Philip jumps into this chariot with this complete stranger that he's just met. And he begins to share with him about what this prophecy means. And he shares with him about Jesus. And because God has been preparing this Ethiopian's heart, his heart is responsive and he puts his faith in Christ in that moment. And then the Ethiopian says, Now, aren't Christians supposed to be baptized? And and Philip says something like, well, yes, they are, but we're in the middle of the desert. There can't be any water. And and the Ethiopian says, well, what's that? That looks like water. And immediately, there's water over here to the side. So they pull over there, and and he baptizes him, and then he sends him away, and the Spirit whisks Philip away, and now we have the very first missionary of the gospel to Africa. How far will God go to reach one person? He'll send an evangelist to a specific place at a specific time who just happens to be there from thousands of miles away, and because Philip obeyed, someone came to Christ. That's an amazing story. So you think, well, that's got to be one of the most incredible stories in Acts. Well, we're going to look at another story. Let's go to the next chapter, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is also the story of how far God will go to reach one person, but this person that God reaches is a very, very different one than the Ethiopian eunuch because this is not someone who is seeking after God. This is someone whose heart has been hardened. In fact, I want to introduce you to a person who is a radical fundamentalist terrorist. A radical fundamentalist terrorist who is so convinced that his way is the right way, that his, his heart passion is to exterminate Christianity. He wants Christianity and Christians to be eliminated. In fact, and his name is Saul, by the way. And Saul is so determined to see this done that he actually has government orders. He's actually gotten permission from government officials to go and pursue Christians, to arrest them, kill them if necessary, but to throw them in the prison. And so here is Saul, the radical fundamentalist terrorist who has a reputation for his brutality, He is on his way, he's got a list in his hand, and he's on his way to a place called Damascus to hunt down Christians, and on that list is a list of all the people who follow Christ in Damascus. And on the way, how far will God go to reach a radical fundamentalist terrorist? On the way, boom! A flash of light knocks Saul from his horse. He's he's there with all the group of his, his his, his colleagues, And there in the dirt, he's disoriented, he can't see, he's blinded by the light, and he hears a voice from heaven say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? I'm not persecuting you, I'm I'm killing Christians. And he, he has no idea that he's just had an encounter with the risen Christ. They, they pull Saul up out of the dirt. They have to lead him by the hand into Damascus. He's so confused. He's so disoriented. And, and they, they put him in this one bed and breakfast where he just lays there for three days, not eating or drinking, and he's on this, he's on this spiritual journey that he doesn't even know that he's a part of. Now, that's, that's how far God go, would go to reach one radical fundamentalist terrorist, but the part of this story that's most amazing to me is how God uses the person to reach him. Now, look at what it says in uh, verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas. Look how, look how specific this is. Go to, a house, to the house of Judas on Straight Street. You know, you know that one right there? And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, Ananias is probably thinking, and in fact, he says it in just a minute. Wait a minute. I know somebody named Saul from Tarsus. you talking about Saul, the radical fundamentalist terrorist who has a list that he's going to kill Christians? Yes, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Wait a minute, my name's Ananias. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, i.e., me, my wife, and my children. But the Lord said to Ananias, go this man is my chosen instrument. And verse 17 is one of the most remarkable verses of obedience I think that I've ever read. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. You want to talk about courage? Placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as he was coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And Saul, the radical fundamentalist terrorist, became Paul the greatest missionary to the Gentiles that the world has ever seen. And we all better be glad for that because 99.9% of us here are Gentiles. How far will God go to reach one radical fundamentalist terrorist? He'll he'll knock him off his horse in the very time that he's going to kill the people of God. Then he'll send the very person who was on his list to kill and to lay his hands on him. You want to you want to talk about a God that is a seeking God, a purposeful God, and you know, all of us have this same type of story. It may not be as, as, as radical as these particular stories, but they are stories that we all have, and all of these stories have what I want to call the undercurrent of what we have known as the provenient grace of God. Now, that's a big word. What does it mean? The provenient grace of God. Provenience means to go before. It means before our response, that's that's part of what it means to be a Wesleyan Christian is we believe the Bible teaches that before we could ever respond to God, God has already come and responded to us. Now, let me tell you how this works. Sometimes people will say things like this. I came to Jesus back in... 1984 at children's camp. I came to Jesus at the Flint Central Altars back in a revival, a spiritual renewal week in whatever year. And I understand what people mean when they say that. They're trying to talk about the moment when their lives were intersected by God and their lives were changed forever. And it's true. The only problem is, that's not exactly how it happened. Because nobody ever comes to Jesus. You didn't come to Jesus. I didn't come to Jesus. You want to know why? Because we couldn't. The Bible says, in fact, the very person that we call Saul, who later became Paul, he wrote these words. We were all, someone say all, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. How many of you know dead people can't respond? How many of you know dead people aren't even semi-conscious? No, we were dead, we were, we were walking around, we were going through our lives, we were, you know, we were going to our jobs and going to our schools and we were watching ESPN and eating dinner, but, but we were just spiritually zombies. We were dead people walking spiritually, we had no spiritual perception whatsoever. And in that spiritual deadness, we, had, we didn't have the capacity we, we didn't have the opportunity to come to God because we, we didn't even know there was a God. But when we could not come to Jesus, Jesus did something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. Amen. He came to where we were and he touched us. And in that touch, there was a spiritual awakening in our lives where suddenly we were now aware that his presence was with us and we didn't, maybe we couldn't put our finger on what that meant and we didn't fully understand it. And it wasn't the moment of our conversion, but it was the moment where now we could begin to, to, to sense that God was directing us and we could see how God was intersecting our lives. That's called provenient grace. It's the grace that goes way before we could ever respond. And listen, Christianity is the only world religion that will tell us this. Only Christianity says that before we could come to God, God came to us. Every other religion will say you have to climb your way up to God. You have to clean yourself up. You have to get yourself together. You have to become moral. And, and, and if, in fact, the Koran says this. If you take one step toward Allah, Allah will take two steps toward you. But who's taking the first step? You are. Now Christianity is the religion that says God is like a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and 99 of those sheep are safe in the pen, and one of them is lost. But rather than do the rational thing, which would be to say that I'm, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of what I've got and gonna cut my losses. No, this shepherd does the irrational thing. He says, I know the 99 are safe. And so I'm going to go find, I'm going to go pursue, I'm going to go seek the one lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he rejoices. God is a seeking God. God is a missionary God. That's called the prevenient grace of God. How far will God go to reach one person? He'll go as far as it takes, and he'll go as long as it takes. And his love will pursue them. She was 16 years old, and she was popular at her school. She she was a cheerleader. She was on the student council. She had lots of friends. It wasn't like she was just a lonely, marginalized kid. But she had this deep spiritual hunger in her heart. And it was it was a hunger she didn't understand was a hunger that God had placed there. To, to, to desire him, but her family wasn 't christian she 'd only been to church a handful of times in her life, and but her, her family had the token King James Bible on their shelf, and every day after school she 'd come home from practices or whatever it was, and she 'd take down that Bible she 'd go to her room, she does practicing than some Christians do, and she would open it up to Zephaniah and Leviticus, and she 'd have no idea what she was reading. And she would just read the Bible, and then she would pray this prayer of hunger that said, God, if you're there, help me to understand you. Help me to know you. Bring somebody into my life that can show me how to know you. And she prays this prayer for months and months. A 16-year-old girl in a secular home. And this desire keeps increasing. She doesn't know God is pursuing her. Until finally one morning she wakes up and she has this impression she's never felt before. She doesn't know that it's the Spirit of God speaking to her. But she feels this impression that says, Today I am going to answer your prayers. You're going to meet someone. Listen to him. And she has this sense of anticipation. She doesn't know what it means and doesn't even know if that's exactly what she heard. But it was the 4th of July. And she and her family were going to a baseball game to watch fireworks afterwards. And there at that game on the 4th of July, she looks across the the place over by the Coke stand, and there's another 16-year-old kid who's been watching her. And this kid walks over to her, and he introduces himself, and he says, hi, my name's David. What's your name? She says, my name's Christy. And then I said to Christy, the only pickup line that I knew, where do you go to church? You know, I'm from, I'm from Bethany, Oklahoma. Every girl I know goes to church somewhere. And she says, I don't go to church. And I thought to myself, dating evangelism, this could be a good thing. And I said, would you like to go to church with me? And she said, yes, I would. Now, Christy and I have now been married for 35 years. And I brought her to that Nazarene church and those people loved her and she became a Christian before I did. Her heart was already prepared.
0: Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We're so thankful that that Dr. Busick could be with us. Give us a great week ahead. Help us to be your people wherever we go, whatever we're doing. Send us from this place determined to live for you.